Today on Not Sam Wrestling, former WWE producer Mike Mansuri is going to be on the show. So much drama on Twitter, people asking for their releases, and new championships added to the WWE roster, I guess. This is Not Sam Wrestling. This is Not Sam Wrestling. Introducing your host from New York, here is Sam Roberts. Happy Monday, everybody. Now you know that this is a podcast hosted by a fan. That fan being yours truly, the last professional broadcaster, Sam Roberts. But at no point would I try to portray myself as anything but a fan, which is why I think it's fair that I bring up the WWE action figure reveals that went down over the weekend. Look, um, certainly some better than others. They put out a real cool throwback John Cena figure with the uh, Raglan, you know, old school WWE logo, word life, three quarters length shirt. I like that figure. But the one that probably has the most controversy, Adam Pierce was tweeting about it. Nick Gage was tweeting about it. A lot of people tweeting about it because it is a goofy-looking figure. Is bald Shawn Michaels. Bald Shawn Michaels is getting an action figure from Mattel. Which, I mean, it's like, come on, guys. I feel like it, I feel like bald Shawn Michaels, it used to be to make a custom Sam Roberts figure, you would at least have to get the hair from the Doink the Clown figure. Now I feel like, I feel like the bald Shawn Michaels figure... You're going to get pretty close. You're going to be able to get pretty close to a custom Sam Roberts. I'm, I, there was a, this part of me that after he had one match, I know it was only one match. And plus here's the, here's why I never knew for sure if we would actually get a bald Shawn Michaels in action figure form. And I mean, bald, bald, not short hair, not, you know, return. I mean, wrestling gear. The chap pants that he switched over. Remember when he used to wear tights with chaps over them? And then in that last quarter of his career, he blended tights and chaps together into one pant that I had never seen before and have never seen since. It was a, it was a, you know how like they say assless chaps and anybody who's kind of like a smart aleck like me would go, all chaps are assless. They're just by definition, chaps don't have, they don't have a backside on them. They don't have a seat. They're just there to protect your inner thigh and your leg and stuff. Shawn Michaels made full ass chaps. He made chaps with the ass in them. And then he wrestled in them for a long time. So I mean, ass chaps, bald headed wrestling gear, no shirt, Shawn Michaels. And the reason why I wasn't sure, and I'll bet the reason that that figure is coming out is because of the last ride. Because honestly, if it weren't for the last ride, if that match, because the only time Shawn Michaels ever donned wrestling gear and a cue ball bald head, he's not even bald now. He didn't keep his head shaved like that. He has, he just is a guy with short hair now. But the only time he had that like Stone Cold Steve Austin bald head was for the one match in Saudi Arabia, Triple H, Shawn Michaels, Undertaker, and Kane. And ironically, it ends up being a lot of matches that happened in Saudi Arabia that go on the list 
of matches we don't talk about. Really has nothing to do with the location. I mean, certain older superstars who might have just had a WWE Network documentary focused on their age, defeating certain fiendish superstars for certain universal championships. We don't talk about that match. Uh, Ironically enough, the same maybe superstar that we wouldn't talk about in that first match being in the ring with The Undertaker. We don't talk about that match. And this match, Undertaker and Kane versus Shawn Michaels and Triple H, we don't talk about that match. And we don't talk about that match to the extent that Shawn Michaels, I think, can still get credit for the perfect retirement. I think it would be contested. You know, technically, technically Stone Cold Steve Austin is, I think, the only wrestler that left and did not have another match. And that's why, and I'm glad he, at this point, I'm glad he never did. Because he's the only guy that left. He didn't tell anybody he was leaving. He didn't even get a, a ceremony. I mean, he's had like 18, 316 days since then to celebrate. But he didn't have a full-on, this is your life, Stone Cold Steve Austin moment. And he never came back. If that match had not been such a pivotal part, right, because in the last ride, that match becomes the reason that The Undertaker has to keep going. Like, theoretically, that match could have been The Undertaker's retirement. If he and Kane have a barn burner of a tag with a returning Sean and Triple H, then I don't see The Undertaker coming back for another match after that. I mean, that is... The perfect moment. When you look, I mean, when you watch that last ride and you realize The Undertaker is looking for that perfect out, there's no doubt in my mind. Like, I I, I knew it the first time that I watched the doc. I knew it the first time I thought about it. When you go through and you go, okay, Undertaker's on this quest to have that perfect last match. And I guess, I guess his last match was the Extreme Rules tag with Roman because he was pretty good in it like it was like okay that was his make good one of his make goods that he had had but realistically I mean the moment was Wrestlemania 28 I want to say was that's right right 28 that was the second Triple H match right when he won, yeah, because he went to 29 with CM Punk. 30 was Brock that he lost. 31 was Bray. So, yeah, it would have been 28. Because, I mean, think about it. If he leaves after WrestleMania 28 and never seen again, not only does he leave with a victory, which, he, I mean, you go, well, he's got to put somebody over on his way out. Yeah, but he doesn't need to put Triple H over on his way out. Triple H can lose and the Undertaker streak can just live on and and we're good to go. And that last moment that you see is Sean and Hunter and the Undertaker. Because realistically, that set of four matches is what cements the Undertaker's legacy at WrestleMania. That It cements the Undertaker's legacy at WrestleMania. It cements Shawn Michaels' legacy as the greatest. It's it's a big part of Triple H's legacy as well. I mean, that set of four matches is untouchable. The 28, 27, 26, and 25. The two with Sean and the two with Hunter. That is what the Undertaker streak is all about. So if he retires 
after he beats Triple H in the Hell in a Cell, and the three, and Sean is the referee in that match, so he's involved. And the three of them are on stage together. And it's almost like the way they look out into the audience, like, that's such a beautiful moment. In that moment, it's almost like he's putting over the entire next generation. It's almost like when, when Hunter and Sean and Taker are all together on that stage, it's almost like this moment of, all right, ball's in your court now, boys. This is the end of us. This is the last holdouts of the Attitude Era, the stragglers. We're leaving. So go make it happen. And who knows? If that had happened, everybody might be in a better place. I mean, imagine if Sean and Hunter and Undertaker all at the same time say, we're not getting back into another ring. You're not going to have special attraction matches with us. You're not going to have anything. Sean had already said it. Imagine if Hunter and The Undertaker said the same thing in that moment. And Hunter could have eventually come back because, I mean, you know, he's still a part of the day-to-day business of the company. He's still at every show. He's still the uh, godfather and the birther of NXT, so as we know it. So eventually he could have come back, but imagine if he didn't come back for a while after that. And what would we miss from The Undertaker? Okay, we'd miss the CM Punk match at WrestleMania 29, which... Unfortunately, that's not one of either of the two's best matches ever. It's a very good match. And the story was very good leading into it. And Punk coming out in the gray and purple trunks and everything. Like, I thought it was great. But it's I don't think it's top five Undertaker WrestleMania matches. I don't think it's top five CM Punk matches. I don't know about WrestleMania. He doesn't have, like, that WrestleMania legacy. But, uh, yeah, it's definitely not his... I mean, I would say money in the bank. Winning money in the bank is probably more important to the career of CM Punk at WrestleMania than facing The Undertaker was, especially because we know that he wasn't happy going into that match, not because he didn't want to face The Undertaker, but because he thought he deserved to be in the main event. So that the fact that we all kind of know that, it kind of diminishes that. So we would have lost that match, which I think everybody we we would have been okay with. WrestleMania... 30, we would have lost the Brock match, which that's the only interest. Let's revisit the Brock match. WrestleMania 31, we would have lost the match with Bray Wyatt. Wouldn't have hurt anybody to lose that match. It didn't help Bray, I don't think, at all. Uh, WrestleMania 32, we would have lost the Shane match, which that's another one to come back on. Uh, 33, who'd The Undertaker fight at 33? I guess, was that, that must have been... Roman Reigns, I want to say. Yeah, that was Roman Reigns, 33. And then 34, he was, it, it was the run-in with uh, Shane. I mean, the run-in with Cena, the quick match. And then 35, he wasn't on the show. He was there the next night. So, you know, I don't think that the Roman match was what it was supposed to be for Roman. And it wasn't what it was supposed to be for The Undertaker either. It was supposed to be the retirement, but that match ended up being not good. That match ended up putting The Undertaker on this spiral that led to him having some good and some bad and, like, an extended retirement tour that he ultimately, I think, regretted a lot of the matches. I think all's well that ends well. I don't think The Undertaker has any regrets about his career, but realistically speaking, the only two big things that we miss that would have directly altered in a negative way the path of the WWE would have been the Shane McMahon match. Not because that match was so great or even, 
you know, because we all go, well, Shane jumping off the cell was iconic because there is something amazing about that. But still, it's not iconic the way Mick Foley going off the Hell in a Cell was. The only reason why that match is so important is because that match is the return of Shane McMahon to the WWE. Now, maybe there would be another way to bring Shane McMahon back to the WWE, but if you remember, Shane McMahon returning a few months before WrestleMania 32 was a shock, an absolute shock. They were doing a... Uh, an, an award ceremony and Stephanie was supposed to get it and then Shane comes out and nobody saw it coming and people figured Shane was out of the business forever. You know, people don't remember that because they're so used to seeing him now, but we really thought Shane was done forever. He had, he had gone to China and become a businessman. But he was back. And you remember like the stipulation of that match was, I think Shane was going to reveal some secret that he had about Vince. And then they were just like, well, we, we changed this back now. We're not going to, we're not going to reveal that like that. The Shane, whatever secret Shane had about Vince that was going to be damaging goes right there in the mystery box with who was raising the briefcase up and down at the Shane McMahon, Vince McMahon versus Steve Austin ladder match at King of the ring. You know, that's like, it's like, I don't know. We just keep it moving. I don't know, probably the same guy who blew up Vince's limo. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know what secret there was. So I think you could have found another way to bring Shane McMahon back. So that probably wouldn't have been hurt. Um, Brock would have been very different, though. Because Brock, Brock was not brought back before the Undertaker match to be the spoiler that he became after the Undertaker match. The match, Brock Lesnar beating the Undertaker streak put in motion something that exists seven, this is WrestleMania 37 coming up. So for the last seven years, can you believe that? Does it, does it feel like Brock has been back for like nine years? That's crazy. Yeah, because he came back the night after 29. So eight years, Brock's been back. Amazing. Um. Yeah, because it, uh, or was it the night after? No, it might have been the night after 28. It might have been the night after 28. I don't know. Yeah, it was definitely the night after 28. It was the night after 28, because at 29, he fought Triple H. And that's what I mean. Like, the the at Extreme Rules, after WrestleMania 28, John Cena beat Brock Lesnar. At WrestleMania 29, Triple H beat Brock Lesnar. Like, he was coming back, and he was winning some and losing some. It was always big matches when Brock Lesnar fought, but it was never like a, a, a thing where he was going to come in and he could potentially win at all costs. Like when Brock Lesnar first, first came back and he had the Extreme Rules match with John Cena, it turned us all on our heads because the match looked different than anything we were used to seeing because Brock is just such a different animal. But ultimately... He was a massive heel that was built for to put John Cena over so he could recover from his loss to The Rock. Brock Lesnar beating The Undertaker changed the course of this version of Brock, where now we see him and he enters the Royal Rumble. And we were thinking he may enter at number one and just win the whole thing. Every match that he's in, regardless of how little sense it would make if he were in it, 
we go, no, nah, there's at least a 50% chance that Brock's going to win. He wasn't even in the Money in the Bank ladder match, and he just walked out and won it because that's what Brock does. That's his character. He spoils everything, and he wins all the matches. And the reason that that's the case is because we all went into WrestleMania 30 going, well, if the streak is on the line, like Brock is not beating the streak. That's what we all said. Brock is not going to beat the streak. The whole purpose of Brock Lesnar is to be there to showcase how important the streak is when The Undertaker beats Brock. Brock Lesnar is going to be the example of nobody beats the streak. I'm the streak and nobody beats me. So the fact that Brock is the one that did it, you know, people always talk about uh, uh, putting somebody over or putting a young guy over or whatever it is. Ultimately, Brock is the one that got that rub, not Roman Reigns. I don't think Roman Reigns got any significant rub from beating The Undertaker at WrestleMania. I think he got a bit of a rub from beating John Cena, wasn't at WrestleMania, but that was a moment for sure. I wish it had happened at a WrestleMania, to tell you the truth. But I think because people didn't want to see Roman Reigns beat Brock, uh, beat The Undertaker, and because Brock Lesnar had already defeated him, it just wasn't what they had intended it to be, which is why I'd be okay, historically speaking, if that match never existed. The Brock thing is the only difference. That's the only argument that I would hear. Either The Undertaker should have retired after 28 with Sean and Hunter, or he should have gone out on his back at 30. Those are the only two moments besides the moment that he felt was good for him. I mean, look, I'm, I'm, this isn't a criticism. If you're The Undertaker, you choose how you go out. But I say all that. Because this tag match became folklore and it was used so much in the Last Ride series. Because the Triple H, Shawn Michaels, Undertaker Kane tag match became one of those matches where it was just a complete disaster. But because it was such a disaster, it it meant the Undertaker had to keep going. He couldn't let that be his last match. And so because... People feel like, I think, that the last ride kind of ended on a happy note, that we have gotten word that The Undertaker's had his last match, that it was a decent performance from The Undertaker, and that we did have the ceremony for him with Hologram Paul Bearer and everything, that now we can look at that match historically and go, well, that match was important because it motivated The Undertaker to keep going and gave us, you know, this tag match with Roman or whatever it is. Honestly, I think the tag match with Roman where he and Roman were actually good as a team, did more for Roman than the victory at WrestleMania did. I think the fact that The Undertaker looked good in a tag team match where Roman Reigns was his partner, I think that gave Roman a rub. That was helpful to Roman Reigns. You never know how this stuff is going to work. But that's all to say that it makes me happy that I'm going to be able to have a bald Shawn Michaels action figure in my collection. It's a little weird looking. It's a little goofy looking. It's an odd choice. You know, it's a basic, it's not an elite, but it's still a bald Shawn Michaels. And it does kind of make me happy. Look, action figure uh, releases weren't the only things that were all on the internet. By the way, later on on the show, I want you to either... 
I guess you could fast forward now if you wanted to. It's a podcast, but Mike Mansuri, who was uh, one of the one of the big producers in WWE, actually, while he was there, especially at the end of his career at WWE. He's a young guy. He's, I think he's like a year younger than I am. We have the same birthday, but I think he's a year younger. Um, but he was with the WWE for something like 10 years, and he started as a PA, and he, he rose in the ranks to the point where he was, he produced the vast majority of the kickoff shows that I was on, but, you know, towards the end of his career, he was producing full pay-per-views. He would produce the kickoff show and then produce the entire pay-per-view. He was producing, helping produce uh, over at the backstage show on Fox. He was producing on Raw. He was producing on, he was all over the place. Um, and he decided to leave mid last year. I actually had made the decision before COVID. So it wasn't because of COVID, but he decided to leave just because I think he grew so fast in the company that he realized that there wasn't a lot more room for him to grow. And if he did, it would not happen for a very long time. And it's tough to change pace like that, I believe is what happened. But we'll talk to him and he's got a new podcast with uh, Mark Madden over on the Pat McAfee, I don't know what, PMI, I don't know what the I stands for. Pat McAfee's Idiotic Podcast Network. I don't know what the I stands for. I'm not insulting anybody. I just don't know what the I stands for. So we'll get to that. But uh, I bring up Mark Madden because he's part of this story that I was looking uh, on the internet about. It's that, so Freddie Prince Jr., who last week, if you go uh, to my YouTube page, youtube.com slash not Sam, um, and you and you see uh, the show that I do called In the Not Sam Studio. It's an interview show. Freddie Prince Jr., coincidentally, was my guest on the show on Tuesday. And some of the stuff we talked about was wrestling and how he was a writer for the WWE. He had two stints as a writer for the WWE. The first, he was on the road full time, uh, and he ended up leaving when he and Sarah Michelle Gellar had uh, their first kid, I think. Uh, and then the second one, he ended up coming back on a kind of part-time basis. I think he was on the road every other week. But when he realized he couldn't give 100% anymore because, you know, he's got a family now. He's got kids. And also, this is Freddie Prince Jr., okay? The run that this guy had in the 90s, you think he needs this? He doesn't need this. So he's not there anymore. But he did tweet out, he sent out this tweet uh, over the weekend or Friday or something like that. And it just said, if you knew how bad, mo by the way, it should be how badly, but how bad most TV execs did not want professional wrestling on their channels, you'd respect the hell out of WWE, NXT, and AEW for pulling off what they do each week. They literally have every card in the deck stacked against them, and they're still growing the business. This is why cats like Triple H doing interviews and Cody being on other TNT programming is so important. They help normalize the business because they just get it. They come off chill and solid. Hope they both continue to stay out in the public eye. It's more important now than ever. And I'm going like, that's awesome. You know, Freddie Prince Jr., pretty big name, right? I mean, especially for my generation, Summer Catch, she's all that. I know what you did last summer. Let's hit the kids with some Scooby-Doo movies. You know, icon, icon. And he passes what's known in the industry as the last professional broadcaster, Sam Roberts, sniff test. 
A lot of people don't have the guts to be a subject of the Sam Roberts sniff test. But I sniffed him out. And he's a legit wrestling fan. Like, Freddie Prince Jr. is a guy that I could talk to for hours about professional wrestling, about history, about stuff we're fans of, about psychology of it, about the way decisions are made, about current day, past day, whatever it is. You know, you got to come on a pretty high level to hang with me. I think most of you that listen are probably on that level. And Freddie Prince Jr., quite frankly, is on that level. He's also on this level of a guy who knows television. I mean, he had a sitcom called Freddie that he was the star and writer and executive producer. Like, he's on Peacock right now. He's on the Punky Brewster uh, reboot. He's been in the business since he's a kid. If anybody has had conversations with TV execs, if anybody kind of knows the vibe that TV execs have, it's this guy. He's coming from the perspective of a guy who literally is was an industry darling and then became a wrestling writer. And so he knows. He knows how people reacted. He knows how people, and I'm assuming everything. I didn't talk to him. He know, well, I mean, I talked to him, but he didn't tell me any of this stuff. But I would imagine that he knows when somebody goes like, well, why are you doing that? You're writing, you wrote for wrestling? What are you, what are you, what are you just telling them to fake fight? What are, you, what are you doing there? Isn't that like kind of corny stuff, cheesy stuff, redneck stuff? What are you doing there? Like, you know, I, 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 if anybody knows that feeling, I, I would think it would be him. And I read those tweets. I was like, oh, it's so cool that Freddie Prince Jr. has decided to just jump on Twitter and, and just tip the hat. He tips the hat to WWE, to AEW, to Cody, to Hunter. And he's just like, yeah, you guys are doing it right. You're doing your thing and you're changing the perspective on professional wrestling. And this is a good thing. I could not believe it. When I signed on to the internet on Saturday, and this has actually resulted in controversy. Like, I don't know why we as wrestling fans have to eat our own. I mean, this is, but I mean, it shouldn't surprise me. This goes back to like when I did that Tom McGee thing for WWE and, and, and Meltzer is like, oh, I never heard of that guy ta trading tapes. Like, the fuck do you know? Like, just this, this, this sort of like gatekeeperism that we have where, where like we as wrestling fans want the wrestling business to prosper. But when we see somebody, not we, because I'm, I'm pretty sure most of these people who, most of you guys who are listening to this are probably are my same school of thought, where it's like, if you find a wrestling fan that's a real wrestling fan and that, like, represents wrestling well, and he's got any kind of credibility in mainstream entertainment, you're like, yeah, dude. You're the man. Thank you for putting this forward. Like, I don't know why you're like, no, we have to be kept shrouded so nobody can know what's going on. It's just for us. Just for us. Us people who have no other interests in the world. Like, come on. I find out a film director. I find out a musician. Last week, we had Alex from Gaslight Anthem on the show. You know why I'm friends with Alex from Gaslight Anthem? Because I think it's so cool. Billy Corgan. Billy Corgan is like a wrestling historian. And oh yeah, he's part of the, he's, he's, he's the guy in one of the most important rock groups 
in one of the most important times in the history of the genre, Smashing Pumpkins. But what are we going to sit there and go like, ah, Billy Corgan, he's, he, he did Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness. He doesn't know what happened at the Raw Bowl in 1995. He can't talk about it like we can. Shut up. Like, we should be, not to say we should be like bowing at the altar, but we should at least be like, oh, that's so cool. Somebody that has this whole other thing going on wants to be a part of our club. Let's let this person in our club. This person is actually representing us well. Let's, uh, to, to an audience that may not know or may have these negative preconceived motion, notions about this thing that we love. Let's let this guy do it. But instead, you got like, uh, I think it kind of started with like uh, the, the and, and I mean, it was twofold because I want to say that it had more to do with one part of this than the other. But there were multiple parts of this. Mark Madden, who's doing the podcast with uh, Mike Mansuri, it's called Quadruple M's. Uh, he responded, the quote unquote business is definitely growing, perhaps not the audience. Wrestling is seen as reliable programming. If TV execs, quote, don't want pro wrestling on their channels, how come WWE is getting $650 million in annual, annually in rights fees? So what you're saying is impossible to believe. Like, come on. Like, what Freddie Prince Jr. is saying is that in spite of the fact that there's a prejudice against wrestling, WWE was able to pull off a $650 million annual rights fees deal. So props to WWE. That's all this was about. And if you don't think, I mean, Mark worked in wrestling. If you don't think there's a bias against wrestling, if you don't think in, in, in mainstream entertainment, if you're really sitting there thinking that you think Freddie Prince Jr.'s take, that most, most, not all, most TV execs don't want to put professional wrestling on their channels, you think he made that up? You think there's no evidence of that? I mean, you worked in wrestling. You know how people feel about wrestling that aren't in wrestling. You know when it comes to wrestling, generally speaking, for most of the people, you either love it or you don't want anything to do with it. You know you've had conversations with just normal people, in not entertainment people, not people who work in a boardroom, not television executives, just normal people. And you know the first syllable related to pro wrestling that comes out of your mouth, you start to see the eye rolls. What's that, that wrestling stuff? You know that's still happening in 2021, and you know it was happening when you were doing commentary on Nitro. And I look at your app mentions. You know that when you're doing your sports radio show, a good portion of your audience hates it when you talk about wrestling. And that's not because you don't do it well, because I know when I'm doing my show on SiriusXM, a huge chunk of my audience hates it when we talk about wrestling. Why? Because it's, because it's wrestling. You know that historically, people in wrestling have told these stories, how difficult it's been to get advertisers on pro wrestling shows, how that's always been a struggle to get great advertisers on pro wrestling shows because advertisers have a stigma about pro wrestling. If advertisers, if certain big advertisers have historically had a reluctancy to pro wrestling, what makes you think it wouldn't be an uphill battle 
to get TV executives to accept it who are not wrestling fans. You know? Like, what? Well, Meltzer responded to it and he wrote, uh, he just wrote, the reason AEW exists is because a key exec was interested in wrestling on his channel. Yeah. And the reason that WCW ceased to exist is because the execs of Turner refused to have wrestling on their channels. If TV execs loved wrestling, and this is in like the early 2000s, then Eric Bischoff and his partners would have been able to purchase WCW and kept it on TV. Let's not act like, okay, I mean, I understand that not everybody in TV runs away from pro wrestling, obviously, because pro wrestling has been on TV since the advent of television. But let's not act like there has not been a concerted effort by all parties. WWE has been leading the charge on this for a long time, but AEW has been doing the same thing since they showed up. That is educating not only the public, but the industry as to what pro wrestling really is. And the reason for that is because they don't have an understanding of that and they do have prejudices against it. And I don't know why, because it's Freddie Prince Jr., we act like he's crazy for pointing that out. Especially when he's pointing it out in a way where you're like, we're winning the battle. This is a battle that we're winning because of Vince McMahon and Triple H and Tony Khan and Cody Rhodes and like, hey, good news, guys, we're winning the battle. And then you got people going, what do you know? There's no battle. I mean, it's ridiculous. And like, uh, you know, I, I, I guess some people are taking exception because, you know, like Mark Mann says, the business is definitely growing, perhaps not the audience. And then, you know, Freddie Prince turned around and said, yeah, but you have to look at TV ratings as a whole, which is true. But it, I mean, it's also true that wrestling ratings have gone down quicker than TV ratings as a whole. Uh, but like business isn't, isn't down for WWE. I mean, certainly not down for WWE. And it's not down for wrestling in general. Business is, business is extremely healthy. For pro wrestling. I don't know if you heard, but Peacock just gave a, a 150,000 billion gazillion dollars for the WWE network. Oh, but Sam, doesn't that mean TV executives love wrestling? No. No. It means that WWE was able to get an awesome deal because they have done the work to educate people to this deal because they, and it's an uphill battle for them that they are winning. Same with AEW. If there is no prejudice against professional wrestling in the world of mainstream entertainment, then how come every time I turn on the Emmy Awards, year after year after year, you go, well, what category would wrestling even be in? That's why. Because there's no sports entertainment category. Like, what are you gonna put in a sports category? It's not a sitcom, it's not a drama. I don't know. I see a televised category for best live event special. And every year, the award show gives it to another award show. Half the time, you see the guy accepting the award is actually producing the show that's on right now. 
the guy producing the Emmys is accepting an Emmy while he's producing the Emmys because he also produced the Grammys and the Grammys won. And if you mean to tell me that any of those award shows, the Grammys, the Oscars, the Emmys, the best award show is worse than the worst episode of Monday Night Raw, Friday Night SmackDown, Wednesday Night Dynamite, Wednesday Night NXT, the live special category should be filled to the brim with professional wrestling shows. Do you know how difficult it is to pull off a live professional wrestling show every single week? No. I mean, we do. But the industry doesn't. That's the point he's making. And so after that, I mean, and it's not, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with Mark Mann and Dave Meltzer having their opinions as well. They've, they've earned them. But then I'm sitting there like, you know, and you go through like at mentions and everything and this whole conversation that starts. And it's like more than half the people are acting like he said something outrageous or like they're trying to argue that business isn't good. Like they're actually wrestling fans are arguing against wrestling because they want to prove the celebrity wrong. And I'm like, bro, I don't know what the end game is here. I don't know what your end game is here, guys. We could just be happy that wrestling is, is doing pretty good. One way to take it, you know. But hey, man, I love the drama. I love the real life. I love, speaking of WWE doing well, AEW doing well, I love this Talking Smack show is so great because Paul Heyman is just such a genius at walking that line and just saying the thing where he doesn't he doesn't bury anybody. See, like, I go on TV and I try to get controversial. I just end up burying people. It's terrible. But Paul, Paul Heyman walks that line where he doesn't bury anybody, but he also, I mean, it's as controversial as controversial gets. I saw it everywhere. Edge, your best friend realized that he was going to have to deal with Roman Reigns. So he ran away and it's like, Ooh, that's the type of stuff I want to see a little nod. You don't have to sit there and mention the competition by name, mention the superstars by name. You don't do any of that stuff, but just that little nod. And it's like, we all, we all know who he's talking about. Is he talking about Christian going to AEW? Did he just say that on a WWE show? But if you don't know, he didn't give a free commercial to your competition. It's genius. It's perfect. I wish there was more stuff. I wish on NXT they'd go like, uh, oh, we've got an explosive main event tonight. And trust me, when we promise an explosive main event, we always deliver. And then you keep it moving. You keep it moving. Little shots. Little pot shots. Little aggressive pot shots. I think are great. I think they bring out the best. But that's why, I mean, I, I loved that moment. For me, I mean, it's it's why Paul Heyman was so is is so good. It's why Talking Smack is so good because it's it's that little dose of reality. We're using reality to tell stories here, and Paul Heyman is just so good at finding stories that are being told on SmackDown and 
using reality to justify why this is really going on. You know, use it when Sami Zayn was on it. Sami Zayn just cut a monster promo and it was great. And then Paul Heyman goes back to his time running Raw and he legit did it and explained why Sami Zayn didn't get over on Raw and everything. It's just so good. It's just so good. I'm a fan, man. I loved it. I loved it. I was also uh, a couple of things, a couple of, a couple of Wednesday notes, a couple of Wednesday notes that I was a big fan of. Number one, you, you could color me a fan of Maki Ito. I would, I, if I were building a promotion, Maki Ito would be on my short list of signings. I mean, hats off. The, the whole, I, and I know, I mean, that was the other, like, other controversy. I saw, like, Rusev and Jim Cornette getting into it on Twitter, which is a battle that I want to see. I've got to see it. Whether it happens in a ring, whether it happens, and, like, you know, they're like, oh, this guy's just a fool from Twitch. I'm a guy with a podcast. And you're like, I don't know why internet shows or what the hierarchy is. I have no idea. But a battle between Rusev and Jim Cornette. I'm here for, and good for Rusev for standing up for uh, young Penelope Ford. But um, yeah, I saw that not everybody liked the Maki Ito thing on Dynamite. I thought it was amazing. I thought it was Dynamite, quite frankly. You know, I thought it was one of those things where the act is so good, it doesn't matter that it appears the when she hits somebody with a microphone, it's utterly, it's painless. Like, I felt like I could withstand the blows that she was doling out with that microphone, but it honestly didn't bother me. It didn't matter. The act is so good. The singing, and then when the music stops and she keeps singing and there's a big fight going on while she just keeps going, she's just in her own world of cuteness. That's her word, not mine. I thought it was great. I'm just such a fan. I am such a fan of the whole act. It feels relevant. It feels good. It feels good. It feels real good to watch. It feels like the type of thing, and I'm big on this. This is what I'm big on on all these shows. At the end of the show, you go, what am I going to tell my buddy tomorrow? Oh, I was watching. What did you see on wrestling last night? Oh, I did this thing. That's one of the things that I would say I saw, you know? I mean, over on NXT, I would say, well, I mean, they had maybe the best match you could have in wrestling right now between Finn Balor and Adam Cole, and it was just on free television. That's one thing you could tune in for. You know, both those things. I would go like, yeah, Wednesday is a wonderful night to be a wrestling fan. Uh, There was some controversy about the NXT Women's Tag Team Championships. Number one, the fact that a new tag team championship was even created, right? That was the first criticism, I think, that people were wondering why, if there's already a WWE Tag Team Championship that never gets defended, or when it does get defended, it's just not a priority, right? It's a forgotten thing. Which, by the way, I told you was going to happen. I said, I am not against a women's tag team division. But when you look at the amount of women that are on the roster and how they get used, I told you that this thing is going to get forgotten about. And it's basically forgotten about. So the criticism is, why then create another women's tag team championship? And the answer is because... I think NXT is more so, is more than less becoming an island. And I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that that 
when NXT started on the USA Network and the sort of battle cry was that there's no more being called up, that we are now three equal brands, that people go like, okay, so it's Raw, it's SmackDown, it's NXT, so we should see some movement in the rosters, they should look the same, they should sound the same, and the answer is no. The reason that there's not NXT matches on main uh, on, on main roster pay-per-views is because we get takeover specials. Raw and SmackDown don't have separate pay-per-views. They combine rosters to put on pay-per-views. If NXT were represented on those pay-per-views, it would be hard to justify also doing takeover specials. I don't want to lose takeover specials. If you go, and then you go, okay, well, if they're going to make themselves an island, then, you know, if, they're, if, if NXT is going to be autonomous, which I think they are more and more becoming autonomous in the world of WWE, which is amazing. You don't see that in WWE. You know, I think that's the way NXT should be. Just be like, there's there's WWE over here, which is Raw and SmackDown, and then there's NXT. I know the hashtag is WWE NXT, but it's not like it's, nobody says, did you watch WWE NXT? They just go, it's NXT. Raw and SmackDown is one main roster, two separate brands on one main roster, and then there's also NXT. It's not to say it's less than, but it is to say it's its own island. And... When I talk about that I didn't think that the main roster women's tag team championship would be treated the way I thought it should be treated, I don't have that feeling at all, at all in NXT. As a matter of fact, I think people need to look at what Finn Balor did and maybe consider it for themselves. Maybe Peyton Royce gave a hell of a promo on uh, Raw Talk after Raw on Monday. Maybe it's time for... Billy Kay to pack up her resumes and and Billy and Peyton need to go back to NXT to try to become the women's tag team force over there because I feel like the women's tag division is going to be really competitive on NXT. I think NXT is a show where you're going to see women's tag team matches that aren't for the title. That's my thing with a tag team division. A division can't just be championship matches. And more often than not on the main roster, if you're going to see a women's tag team match, it's going to involve the champions. Whether it's for the title or not, the champions are going to be involved. It's either a number one contender match or a championship match or a non-title match against the champions. In NXT, I could see women's tag team matches happening just as a build of the division. I could see those titles being defended on a more regular basis. I mean, they started by defending them the first night. We've already had a title change, which some people didn't like. I don't mind, you know. I thought maybe, maybe you leave it on Raquel and Dakota Kai for a little while, but I'm okay if you don't. I'm okay. As long as you're not switching the title every week, it's not going to make that much of a difference. And if anything, it's like, hopefully we'll get to take over Search and Destroy or seek it, or or it's not seek and destroy. It's uh, stand and deliver. Take over, stand and deliver. Seek and destroy. Have they done seek and destroy? They should. Take over, stand and deliver. I think is what it's called. You've got every reason in the world for Raquel and Dakota to come back and say like, okay, we're gonna get our rematch at Takeover. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I think the NXT Women's Tag Division is gonna show Raw and SmackDown how it's done. Quite frankly, and I I I hope. 
that you end up with some of the great. There's a lot of really good women's talent on the main roster. I would love to see some trades happen with people headed down to NXT and uh, and filling out the women's tag division there. I think it could be great. Oh, and the last bit of drama before we get to Mike Mansuri. I guess the internet said that Andrade asked for his release. And it was not granted. Historically, you hear one of these stories and it's like, they kind of, you know, that means that the person who asked for their release is even less likely to be brought back on TV now. I hope, I would love it if the WWE was like, oh, geez, Andrade asked for his release. He's that unhappy. You know what? Maybe it's time we do something with Andrade. I, th I think I think Andrade is so awesome. I think he's so talented. You know, I, I, I think the stuff he did in NXT is excellent. The stuff he was doing on Raw in the beginning of the pandemic was excellent. You know, I, I, I think the world of Andrade. So I would love to say that I hope that if this stuff is true about the release, that it becomes a wake-up call and that uh, WWE puts their feet firmly into the Andrade business. Because that's, that, I believe that's what I would do if I were in their position. Uh, hey, so I was talking about Mike Mansuri. As I said, uh, he left uh, WWE um, in... I don't know, April or May of last year. And he now works for Pat McAfee. He's one of the producers or the, I don't know what his title is. I don't want to insult anybody over at the Pat McAfee show. But he also launched a wrestling podcast uh, last week. Technically, this wrestling podcast was started in the summer of 2019. Episode one, wrestling with sports entertainment. Pat McAfee with your full-time guest, Sam Roberts. Uh, episode two was finally released two years later. Uh, that happened last week and it is now hosted, uh, by Mark Madden, the aforementioned and my pal, Mike Mansuri. Um, Mike, as I said earlier in the pod was in my ear for, uh, most, the vast majority of kickoff and pre-shows that I did in WWE while he was there. Uh, he certainly helped transition me into that role. He was also the person who was in my ear during the famous uh, WrestleMania and action is on the way moment. So I think we will probably get into that with Mike Mansur. He also happens to be one of my favorite people to talk about wrestling with. He's knowledgeable. He watches the product religiously to this day. I mean, every wrestling show. I'm texting back and forth with him and we're talking about what we think and everything. So... Um, he's one of these guys that I'm happy is now doing a wrestling podcast. Not only do I think you should check that out, I think that you should get a feel for him yourself before you check out his podcast. And that's why he's our guest this week on Not Sam Wrestling. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and the only Mike Mansuri. The Not Sam Wrestling interview. So this is a, a, a gentleman that I didn't know would ever be on the podcast necessarily. I always knew it would be fun to talk to him on the podcast, but for most of the time that we've known each other, that wasn't exactly a, an option. He wasn't in the position where he would, quote-unquote, put himself over. But he's uh, he's finally gotten there. This is, gentleman is uh, somebody who... It's really interesting, too, because as smart as we all are as fans... 
right? As, as much as we all know everything that's going on behind the scenes, there are many names that we don't know that are extremely important, even in a day-to-day -day sense, not just in the office, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, the, in the show that you're watching every single week. There are a lot of names that don't get thrown around because, I don't know, for whatever reason, they don't get stooged off to dirt sheets. But this name, this name is 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 one of them. Michael Mansuri is on the show with us. He's got a new podcast. Uh, well, he's actually taking the reins from uh, Pat McAfee and myself. <laughs> Wrestling with sports entertainment, the phenomenon that debuted in July 2019, is back, and it's back with a vengeance. Hosted by uh, legendary WCW commentator Mark Madden, and this man. Mike Mansuri, what's going on, man? Sam, thank you so much for that lovely, lovely introduction. How are you, brother? I'm good. And I was thinking, first of all, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on was to put my stamp on it. So I always talk about how when I talk to people who are quote-unquote wrestling fans, whether they be like celebrities who are wrestling fans or even like people that interview wrestlers or people that are on YouTube or people that are kind of commentators on the business – for and, and that's what their claim to fame is, I always kind of test them out. Like, I always know, and I'm sure you do the same thing as, like, a serious sure. wrestling fan. Like, you, within the first couple of minutes, like, you kind of figure out the conversation and you know exactly the level of wrestling fan that they're on. But with you, I think it's a step further. I think there are a lot of people that have worked in WWE that go on to do a bunch of interviews about what things are like behind the scenes and 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 do podcasts about wrestling and stuff like that and it's like you did work at WWE but you still don't really know what you're talking about <laughs> you get that vibe and I'm like you're not <laughs> like you did work there but I don't think and 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 the minute that I heard you were actually jumping into the wrestling podcast stratosphere I was like yes this is exactly who should be adding expertise and a level of commentary to this stuff because I mean quite frankly I mean you can you've got the evidence you're one of the people who I'm texting with basically every time wrestling's on TV there's a there's a text chain going back and forth between me and you oh yeah 100% and uh you know we're going we're going at it with a with a very critical line <laughs> sometimes with a uh, with an enjoyed eye uh -huh. but uh yeah you know I I used to kind of have that same reaction Sam right like when I was within WWE you know, you'd see a, a writer or a production person or even somebody that like, you know, may have been an extra at a WWE event, break off on their own and go off and, you know, run a podcast and give you what they claim is inside information, you know, based on fact or opinion more and more often than not, it was always opinion. Um, and I used to make fun of it. 100%. I used to sit there and say, this is dumb. This person had a cup of coffee at WWE, maybe not even enough to watch the grind so I can collect the bottom of the filter. But what, what do they know? What are they going to bring? What insight besides some, you know, skewed perception of what's happening backstage? And I always dismissed it. And, you know, when I had started with Pat McAfee, when I started working with Pat after I left WWE, we had initially talked about reviving wrestling with sports entertainment pretty <laughs> early on. This was July of last year that I started with Pat. And I said, you know, I want to kind of give it some time. I don't want to kind of come fresh out the shoot because unbeknownst to me, the wrestling world had kind of taken – taken the story of my departure and ran with it for a little bit. But I think it was also at a sensitive time because like the WWE co-presidents, they were shown the door and, you know, COVID was happening. So folks were digging for headlines. 
And I just didn't want it to be a situation where it's like, all right, well, this guy left. He's probably got a lot of dirt to spill, put him on a podcast, let him just explode on the company. And that's nothing that ever really appealed to me. And that's nothing that appeals to me now working on wrestling, wrestling with sports entertainment. Like, I just want to offer, you know, praise and critique, but more so from my perspective as a producer, as somebody who lived inside and someone who's gotten a, a phenomenal education in wrestling. That's that, that, I, I, I live to educate. I don't want to criticize just for the sake of doing it. Yeah. I mean, I think and it's only, you're only one episode in, but I think like some of the most interesting insight is that stuff where it's like, well, here's why you think this might be bad, but here's what this actually is, or here's the intention of this, or here's where this is actually going. And it's not the sort of, yeah, you think they don't know what they're doing. Let me tell you how much they don't know what they're doing. It's no, this is the, this is the psychology behind a lot of decisions that get made. Cause I mean, as somebody that, you know, has watched wrestling for 35 years, like literally it's, it's the thing that I love the most. My family obviously comes second. Um, I, <laughs> I look like just, just being backstage. You're like, oh, this is completely different. Sitting in a truck with you and listening to stage direction and listening to everything that goes into making the show. You're like, oh, and you never look at the show the same way again. No, right. Like once you do get like below the surface and really see the uh, the inner workings and how the whole machine is wired, right? Like you kind of gain a better appreciation for it, and that appreciation grew for me from day one, right? Like, uh, you know, I started in WWE in March of two thousand nine, and just like you, I grew up a big fan. I kind of fell off a little bit as I got older, but once I you know knew that that's where I was headed, uh, kind of got myself back into the product and. You know, it's one thing, right? Because as a, even as a kid, you're watching the show and you think something's great, you think something sucks, but you don't know what goes into it. The moment I saw what went into it, I fell in love with every aspect of it and almost reinvigorated my love for the business that much more. And not even from a putting the matches together and watching the boys, you know, kind of plan things out. It was, wow, this is what it takes just for Monday Night Raw to make air. This is unbelievable. It blew my mind. And it just, like I said, it just made me fall in love with the business that much more. Yeah, just the idea of this is what goes in, but this is just regular. Like, this isn't like, you know, the chaos of Monday night is not like, oh, this was a chaotic Monday night. You're like, no, this is this is just Monday. We'll do it again later this week. We'll do it again next Monday. We got a pay-per-view on Sunday. It's just this is this is the day-to-day. -day. I would imagine that that any job, whether it's with Pat McAfee or whoever else in any form of media or any form of anything, when you come out of WWE, the pace on life just has to change dramatically for you. Yeah, 100%. You go from uh, 180 miles an hour, 52 weeks a year, and when you start downshifting gears, you don't know what to do with yourself. Like my first few months after after I left WWE, I was, you know, I started having like anxiety attacks because like I just felt like I was doing something incorrect or I was just missing, I was missing something. You know, 11 plus years of, lather rinse repeat you know town arena airport etc it was it was gone and you missed that frenetic pace man because like going back to what we were talking about before when you're when you're part of putting something together it makes the the feeling of completion of the product in our case a show feel that much more gratifying and you really forget how complex putting those shows together really can be um when you're in the middle of it, you're in the middle of it for so long. You know, we used to give tours to folks, like we'd have partners and, you know, 
folks just come in just to kind of get a look of, of behind the scenes at what it takes to make Raw or SmackDown happen. And we would nonchalantly explain everything to them. And they'd, you know, just walk around with just amazement and wonder in their faces, jaws slack. And they're like, how can you guys just treat this so easily? Like, like how does this happen so easily? And you forget, like, you've just got a dedicated, dedicated crew of people that really sacrifice everything to put that all together from the men and women that get there at 6 a.m. for loading to put this set together uh, to the writers, to the, you know, to the production staff, to the talent, everyone else in between to catering. Like, everyone really gives their all to make sure that what you see on TV happens flawlessly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I remember my first WrestleMania that I was working there, it was like, I mean, and it was the simplest things. It was just a quick stand-up shot of me for a minute hyping people up. And I remember we we pre-taped it, right? We pre-taped one, and the producers go back and listen to it, and they're like, no, nah, the audio sucks. Like, there's no way. Let's go pre-tape it again. And we pre-tape it again, and they kind of change some things. They go, okay, think, I think the audio is better. And it's supposed to run within the first, like, 10 minutes of the kickoff show for WrestleMania. This is the WrestleMania, the second Orlando one where the Hardy came back and, yeah, yeah. and, and the pre-show starts and I'm sitting there on the sidelines. You always sit there just in case, even if you're not on the panel, you sit there just in case because stuff like this comes up where the producer, he gets something in his earphones and he looks at me and he goes, Sam, we're doing it live. We got to run to the floor and we're running through it. We're literally running through a stadium trying to run down and we get there and we clear out space on the floor. We were at the, t we were in a box. We go all the way down yeah. to the floor. We clear it out. <laughs> we finally get a camera. We get the, he's like sitting there and this is the beauty of it that it's not like you could just jump in the crowd and stick a camera. It's like this, this, the producers are smart enough to be like at this rushed pace, placing the audience around me in the right semicircle so it all looks make sure the short kids are up front the tall kids are behind them so it doesn't look like you know stupid you know okay guys just cheer we are in five seconds same you're ready to go five seconds five four three boom and here we go and it's wrestlemania time and you're just like yeah this is but this isn't like oh i'm gonna write a book about how chaotic today was this is yeah this is how we this is how we put on these shows this is why they look like they do because this is the pace that we work at yeah, it's 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 a uh, you know some folks base jump right for you know to get that like <laughs> adrenaline rush right. My uh, my my I'm, I'm terrified of heights, so my adrenaline rush and my uh, my my junkie thrill was always producing live TV. And I'm sorry for making you uh, take that sprint from the from the press box <laughs> all the way down to the floor. No, I loved it. I loved it, but I think so. We met first, and this is I mean this is to show how long you've been at WWE because I mean there was a period of time. I think a lot of people also uh, kind of overplay. Uh, their importance sometimes, you know, after they leave WWE or maybe overplay how much they were actually there. But like the year before COVID, I remember you were on a run where you were literally in the truck for Raw. Then you would go to LA for the Fox show backstage. Then you'd go to Orlando for NXT. Then you would go to SmackDown. Then you go back to your apartment in New York on Saturday and then on Sunday, start the week again. Like that wasn't a one-off week for you. There was a period of time where you were literally doing every show. Yeah. I, I was spending a lot of money to have a closet in New York. For a time there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. There was, there was a stretch, like you said, right. It was either producing or working in some capacity on raw, uh, stay the night, that town, Monday, uh, Tuesday morning, whatever 
ungodly hour it had to be fly to LA do WWE backstage with uh, Renee Young mm-hmm. red eye to Orlando get a couple hours of sleep on the plane and then go do NXT mm-hmm. um, Thursday office hours in the city Friday Smackdown then uh, the occasional Sunday pay-per-view but right, like, it sounds crazy you say that and it sounds so crazy yeah and you know like I would you know Kevin Dunn would pull me aside Kevin Dunn was my boss at WWE the executive producer he would say you good like you need anything like pretty pretty fucking crazy and i'd say no man i love it let's keep going what do you need what's next what's next yes yeah and because i mean and that's that's and that's i think why you did so well there because there is when you're doing it not only do you get used to it but you actually at a point it's like yeah i I like working at this pace eventually i'm going to get exhausted but until i get there this is fun like this is this is this is the level that i want to be playing at you're really you're almost you're almost testing yourself, like the the endurance that you have. You're like, this is you get this sense of accomplishment. I would have to imagine being like, yeah, I can, I can perform at this level at this rate for a long time. One hundred percent. You almost feel like a sense of invincibility, right? Like for a time there, I thought I was Superman that I could do, I could do those marathon runs and feel fine. Eventually, it catches up to you, mm-hmm. and you know your body can humble you. But you know when you're in the thick of it, and like I said, it's it's just that that sense of accomplishment and that sense, that sense of satisfaction that you feel when every project show, whatever the case may be is completed. It's a, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to put that in the words, you know what I mean? Like I'm not a parent, but I would imagine it'd be like watching your kid do something pretty freaking cool. Mm -hmm. Like to me, that's what like the end of a show would feel like you feel just very, very proud. And after a point, like, you know, when I started to produce those shows, I would feel proud, not only not for myself, you know what I mean? But, more so for the team that was around me, because without a show, without a great team, nothing nothing goes right. You know yeah. what I mean? The uh, a producer is only as good as the people that he has around him, uh, supporting and working in every capacity possible. Yeah, I mean, you know, you're in a truck, explaining what you want over a headset. So if you've got a group of people that don't that can't deliver what you want, then who cares what you want? <laughs> like it's not going to happen, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's wild too, man. Because like you know, I I have I I I place a lot of pressure on myself in situations like that, right? Like because I always want to perform at the top, and the best feeling is when you know that those around you are elevating themselves or just keeping themselves at that same pace because everyone's everyone's kind of going for the same goal, and it's 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 just a really cool feeling. So I mean, I I, I met you for the first time, I think long before uh, I was doing kickoff shows or anything through, uh, you know, mutual acquaintances. I believe there was a Josh Matthews connection <laughs> yeah. that, that, you know, yeah. we, we saw each other a little bit socially, but then I, I mean, I distinctly remember I went in for an audition, like just a traditional <laughs> aud- audition, which I mean, I didn't even get a no, like the amount of no callback that I got, like, it was like, <laughs> I'm leaving messages on the machine asking you to, to, not you, but asking WWE to say no. And it was like, we're not even going to, I mean, it's such a no that we're not going to call you back. Like it's, it is not a chance. (laughs) It's like, like, we're not even having a conversation with you. And there were people at that audition that got the gig. So, you know, it's not the audition. It's you. (laughs) It's, It's like, okay. All right. But you know, you go in and, and, and I did like the, you know, the, the, trial of you know commentating some matches on tape and everything and then one of the things that they had me do at that time was to go like they want to see how you would interview a superstar so they're like here's 
producer Mike Mansuri. And I believe at that point you were Ryback. And I had to yep. I, I had to interview you and you were just trying to throw every conceivable uh monkey wrench in my in my direction as I interviewed you. I think looking back on it now, right? I feel like I may have sabotaged your audition a little bit. Um, <laughs> but hey, it all worked out for the better, right? Like you may not have gotten the gig then, but we brought you in in a different capacity and you've been killing it ever since, man. It's been, a, for me, even watching you now take the reins on those NXT TakeOver pre-shows when you were always kind of the uh, the, the the analyst, right? Or the, the color commentary on it. To see you take the lead now and run it with, uh, with Stu Bennett, old Wade Barrett and whoever else they throw it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, been, uh, it's been cool. It's been cool to see, man. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. But you know, I mean, you were, you were the voice in my ear for, you know, almost the vast majority of the kickoff shows and pre-shows that I've done. Um, and one of, I mean, and I, I've, I've said, I think I've told, I don't even know if I've told the story or not, but there were, there were many instances where you would literally on the show and you were very good. This is cause you're, you're a very good producer because you wouldn't, you would never give me verbiage, specific verbiage. There was one time, we'll get into that. But you would never give me <laughs> specific verbiage. You would just kind of sort of guide me and let me know what the show looked like outside of myself with real simple instructions. And I remember, I think it was a SummerSlam or something like that. But on a show, you were like, we need more Sam. You're being too much broadcaster. We need more Sam. And so I would turn up the Sam. And then you'd be like, okay, let's Sam, let's Sam. You're, yeah, it's too, you're, you're burying people now. It's too much Sam. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's you, you kind of got to know the folks that you're working with, right? And, you know, I one one instance that I remember of the two of us doing a show together, uh, there was a takeover. I want to say it was Chicago, and I think you were working with uh, Mansoor. We tried Mansoor yep. out on a panel. And I had asked, you know, for some reason, the folks at WWE weren't into it. I had always wanted to feed the audio of the pre-show or kickoff show announcers to the audience. And I was always denied for some reason. And at the time, those reasons always made sense. But, you know, I kind of made the, the, the push for it this time and I, and I got my way on it. And I love that interactivity between the panelists and the audience because they're watching, there's nothing going on in the arena, the arena, but you guys. Mm -hmm. So the audience really has no context as to what's going on and kind of like a dull experience. So we, we, you know, we fed those mics out to the crowd and you were leaning so hard into just being a pain in the ass <laughs> and being Sam and the audience was letting you have it. And I remember you started playing to the audience every time. And I remember I told you, don't lean into it. Don't play to them. If you actually don't play into what their reaction is going to be, it's going to make you that much more of a quote unquote heel or a, a bad guy in their eyes. Right. And that's exactly what happened. You, you followed just that you changed course and you couldn't get a word out. It was almost like, you know, that uh, Kevin Owens Elias promo in Seattle, just to kind of put you on that pedestal. Right. Like, yeah, you, you got to feel things. And that's one thing that I learned at WWE that, you know, I'm going to take with me forever. I think what would always help me in producing was that everything I did, I felt, mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, uh, if it didn't feel right, then it probably wasn't right. And that was, you know, that's that's kind of how I operated 99% of the time. Yeah, because it's this, especially when you're a wrestling fan and you get that reaction for the first time and people are booing you. It's like, for me, it was intoxicating. So you're like, oh, I can, I can, I can play into this. And you're like, you were smart enough to be kind of outside of the moment that I was in and go, no, they're booing you because, not because you're playing into something, because you're 
not likable. So just continue to be not likable. And I was like, oh. oh and so you just... actually, yeah, you by doing that actually got Mansoor over that much more. Oh, you know, God. They, they, they the loved it. Yeah, you could have uttered, you know, just any syllable out of your mouth and the crowd hated you. So the moment that Mansoor would just come out and say, you know, he could have just said hello the entire night and the crowd would have just eaten him up because, <laughs> you know, it, that, that, that story was told and we, we did a good job in telling that story. Okay, so there was one time that you gave me verbiage and it was not the first WrestleMania. It was the second WrestleMania. Vic Joseph has told me that it was his first, uh, it was his first time doing commentary at WrestleMania and I uh, ruined the feed into him, <laughs> which he's not incorrect about that. But um, we talk about being out there on the fly and I was in the crowd and I was just kind of, and like you, like I've said, like there was never verbiage for me, and I, I think that that was always best for everybody, right? Like I could, I can, yeah. I can formulate my own sentences. That's kind of what I do, except for this one occasion. <laughs> yeah, not this one. <laughs> but and by the way, this is what happens whenever I get a script or actual verbiage. Like, can you do this for me? I'm like, yeah, and I can never like if there's a sentence in my head that I actually have to say, it's just. It's what you always forget. You it's the always worst. forget the point that you have to hammer home 100%. So I go out there and like I, the radios, I guess, weren't working in the Superdome because like plans were changing as I was doing my, 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 my talk. And the producer who was with me wasn't informed because his radio didn't work. So as I'm going, I'm kind of mid sentence and you're in my ear and you go, Okay, we're changing it. Just tell him actions on the way. And I go, and actions on the way. <laughs> and you go, no, at the end of the thing, at the end. <laughs> and that, and this moment where I'm looking at the camera, like, uh, like trying to figure out how do I get back to saying and actions on the way is the beautiful Mike Mansuri in my ear, letting me know, like, no, not just mid sentence, not just out of nowhere. Say it at the end of your thing. So I'm gonna I'm gonna fill in the gaps because this is set, this really is such a beautiful story and uh, I loved your Cliff Notes version of it. So it's WrestleMania 34 in New Orleans at the lovely Superdome or Silverdome, depending on who you ask. <laughs> and the the creative was for you to try to get an interview with John Cena. John Cena's whole thing that night was he was gonna sit in the crowd uh, because if the Undertaker wasn't gonna respond to his WrestleMania challenge, then he was gonna go to WrestleMania as a fan. You were gonna interview. And John was so swarmed with people and like, you couldn't even get in mm -hmm. to the point where I think, you know, uh, whoever that your stage manager was with you just sent it to me. I said, all right, fine. That's fine. Let's just have Sam do a stand up. Everyone's radio start crapping out. Your, your, uh, IFB and your ear doesn't work. The stage manager on the floor, his headset goes out because you're in a stadium that's starting to fill up with, you know, 70 some odd thousand people. So radio frequencies tend to kind of lose their, uh, their impact there. And I remember giving you the direction because we were going to transition to Vic for the cruiserweight match and action. <laughs> what you didn't hear was what I heard in my ear. Uh -huh. uh, there was a certain someone watching. <laughs> because, because, and, because if I could fill in this detail too, also it was the first moment that we were also on the USA network. Yes. That was yes. the first so we, were, we, were we were leading yeah. in. To the we're US. simulcasting. Yeah, we're simulcasting on there. So you hit you you hit that glorious action line with that befuddled look on your face, 
and I just hear in my ear, God damn, what the fuck was that? (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) That's awesome. I had never heard that part, by the way. I think... uh, (laughs) Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to save it for this moment. For you. <laughs> you know, so hey, look, you got you got to pop out of Vince for for just delivering one of the most awkward lines in the history of sports entertainment television. It was it was phenomenal. But uh, yeah, right. The the dangers of working without a safety net on live TV. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, and to me, it's like it's also one of those good learning moments. And I think it's also the moments that you learn about people because I could have been like, oh well. Where was Mansuri on that? He gave me bad instructions. Or where was this guy? They gave me bad instructions. But the only thing I thought was, they're trusting me. Yeah. This media company is trusting me with a live microphone on their television. I need to be able, no matter what gets thrown at me, to form a sentence. That's my part of this, right? So it's like, I can never, and if you, it's never happened again. I can never be in a position where I don't have a sentence where I can't smoothly transition into something. That's part of the gig. Um, and I, and I remember, so I remember leaving that going like, I wonder if that was as bad, like it was real bad in my head, but I'm also such a self-critic. Maybe it's one of those things that felt real bad, but you didn't even really notice. And I walked back to where the panel was and it was like raised and I was on the floor and the panel like throws to break or whatever. And Renee takes her headset off and she sees me and she's like in like a not <laughs> mocking way. Cause Renee's like the, literally the nicest human being you could ever meet in a concerned way almost. Just leans over and she goes, dude, what happened? <laughs> I was like, oh, it was as bad as I thought it was. <laughs> You're lucky that at that point, Graves had transitioned over the commentary because if Graves was still doing WrestleMania kickoff shows with us, your ass would have been roasted when you got up there. <laughs> yeah, but it was uh, it was great. I'm happy I'm happy to know that, that I got a pop out of, uh, out of Vince. That really makes me feel good, actually. I mean, hey, it should make you feel – you're still there. You're still working in some capacity with WWE. That actually may have cemented your place forever because <laughs> of you being able to outlive just that awkward moment. Yeah, and I love that too because I'm like, if I, was, if I was in Vince's position and I had somebody like me that could get awkward in those positions, I swear, I would be feeding every producer. Just throw lines at him. Just throw lines oh, yeah. at him. Let's see if we can screw him up again. Like, it's, it's hilarious. 100 percent and look vince vince loves a good game so i'm, I'm actually surprised that that didn't happen <laughs> that's Action. awesome that's awesome yeah it really was uh it really was and it'll be my legacy forever i feel like oh i mean you 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 you, you immortalized it with that t-shirt which i'm still waiting on by the way you you are owed one you are owed one so how did uh how did the podcast finally come about how do we decide you did well f- before we get to the podcast i guess what what kind of led to you deciding to leave? Because I, I know, I can say that, you know, because people are going to think that you're giving like a PC answer, but I can say that I watched the transition out because I was one of the people begging you not to go because you were, <laughs> I told you, you're my security blanket out there. I need you. What am I going to do? I need you. Please don't leave. It's like when you and Renee were both gone, I was like, but you've always, you've always been here. I, I don't exist without, without you two. Like, don't. Don't, don't leave Mom and me. dad raised you. Now it's time for you to be a man on your own. I'm not ready. I'm not ready. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it was also a very sort. First of all, it was 
absurdly your choice. Like it was extremely your choice. It wasn't even one of those things where you say it's your choice, but you're really saving face. Like it was, it was really your choice in the sense that I think that I wasn't alone when I say that I didn't want you to go. I think there were a lot of people that didn't want you to go. Um, but it was also an extremely peaceful, to my knowledge, you know, to what I witnessed. And I felt like I, I got a good grasp of what was going on. It felt like a very peaceful exit. So what, what led 100%. to that exit? So, um, and it's funny, right? Because after I left, you, you start seeing all these articles that pop up on these uh, wrestling outlets. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of folks have mentioned that, you know, oh, well, you know, when, when Kevin Dunn finds somebody that's, you know, eventually going to, you know, whatever, succeed or whatever the case may be, Vince tends to be pretty critical of that person. That's usually what leads to that person leaving. I had such a great relationship with Vince. I had a phenomenal relationship with the entire McMahon family. Uh, Triple H and I were unbelievably close because of all the work that we did together down in NXT. I mean, you know, I was pretty much raised in WWE. I spent a third of my entire life there, right? Just over yeah. 11 years. And leaving actually wasn't the easiest choice in the world. You know, I had a couple years prior, I was kind of frustrated with what I, you know, with, with, with my course, right? Like where I was going and, you know, the plans for the future, because no one really knew what the plans for the future were. Uh, were. And I, being selfish, if you want to call it that, right? Like I just wanted to work more and I wanted to do so much more and I wanted to contribute a lot more and have an impact on the product and have an impact obviously on my career, but I wanted to do stuff. And those opportunities for whatever reasons weren't readily available to me at that point. And I had expressed that I was looking to leave, uh, had a few meetings with folks at WWE who kind of said like, look, don't make any sort of rash decision just yet. Just kind of sit on it. There is some stuff happening. We promise whatever you're feeling right now, your concerns will, you know, they'll be assuaged and we can move forward, but just don't make any rash decisions just yet. So did that, went along, you know, Fox starts happening, you and NXT starts going live. Um, sky's limit, right? We're off and running. So even while I was in the middle of it, you know, while I was enjoying what I was doing, you know, I kind of, again, still find myself in a position where I still necessarily wasn't where I wanted to be. You know, I was, uh, I was showing them that I could do the work. They knew that I could do the work. Um, but again, like, right, like even though I was vice president of global television production, I was still kind of in the executive world. I was still pretty junior and I wasn't. Still, by the way, a you know, wild title for somebody at your age to have. Yeah. That is a wild title to have in that, in a company like that. Yeah. And like, you know, truth, truth be told without, you know, this isn't like a, a, a way to bury anybody. Right. But, you know, I had asked a couple of times, you know, in reviews of the case, maybe what's next, how do I get to that next level? I've shown you that I can execute on TV. I've shown you that I can do X, Y, and Z. What do, what do I need to do? And I'm more often than I was met with the answer of, I don't know. We just kind of need to see what the future, what the next year, what the next two years are going to look like. And not necessarily from what I was doing from a work, work standpoint, but more so the rest of the landscape of the company. Were people going to retire, um, reduce schedules, whatever the case may be, were new projects going to come up? Like the answers weren't tangible enough for me to kind of like sink a hook into without feeling like a carrot was being dangled in front of my face. So it kind of just got to a point where I realized, you know, I think at this point I've accomplished all that I can accomplish at WWE. And 
I think if I continue to stay in this capacity, I'm going to wind up becoming bitter. And I don't want that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to come to work and to be resentful of my environment or the people around me because I'm not in a position where I can do what I want to do and what I've shown you that I can excel at. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe the time has come for me to just move on and who knows what the future may hold. And that's what I did. And so I actually, I gave my notice, I think it was uh, the first Monday in March. We were doing Ron the Barclays Center. It was, it was after we'd gotten back from Saudi Arabia. So um, kind of just told them then and there, like, hey, I'd like to have a meeting this week uh, and to discuss my exit from the company. And at that time, right, COVID, we didn't really know what it was. It hadn't shut the world down just yet. The XFL was still going on. You know, the, the WWE world was a busy place. And I asked for the meeting so that we can kind of sit down, just take a look at everything as a whole. WrestleMania was a month out. You know, what do we do and how do I help the transition to get me out of there? So I met with Kevin Dunn. We sat down for an hour. We had a great conversation. Um, I even let Kevin pick my, uh, my exit date, which was, I think May 1st, right? So two full months pretty much uh, for me to wrap up what we were doing to transition and head out the door and see what the world had for me. By the way, on the topic of Kevin Dunn, and I don't want to harp on it because I'm sure he wouldn't want himself to be harped on. Does it, as somebody that I have had conversations with Kevin Dunn, he seems salt of the earth. He seems like a really, not only a good dude, but like, somebody so dedicated to his craft and like somebody who's pretty amazing at it too. Does the internet's sort of narrative of Kevin Dunn and, and kind of blaming him for everything and just, you know, portraying him as this ogre, how far off base is it? 100% off base. Yeah. Completely off base. Yeah. Uh, you said it best. He really is the salt of the earth. Um, you know, from whatever I've read, that, that happened, you know, the, whatever the narrative is about Kevin for anything that I've ever seen on the internet, it typically comes from people that didn't have good experiences with him. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have a good experience with him, you know, I'm sure you're going to, that's how you're going to classify him. Like I didn't have good experiences with a lot of WWE people, I'm meaning them having experiences with me. So I'm sure they may have an opinion of me as being, you know, an ogre or an asshole, whatever the case may be. Uh, you know, but right, negativity sells. And when you're trying to push it out there, and you're looking for somebody to blame, who better to blame than the guy who's practically Vince's right-hand man? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I always thought he was kind of painted unfairly. Um, but, you know, again, people will kind of spin whatever narrative they want to kind of further their point. I never had anything but great experiences with Kevin. Uh, you know, he took great care of me from the moment that I got there, you know, and he, you know, very rarely does a PA kind of get the attention of the big folks, but I was fortunate enough pretty much from the onset of my WWE career that I had, you know, Kevin Dunn guiding me, I Vince guiding me because at the time when I started, you know, working on the arena floor, you know, Vince was doing rehearsals. So I'm there I am running for Kevin Dunn and running for Vince, the two guys with Pat Patterson and Bruce Pritchard, right? That built the WWE. Wow. Like what what more of an education can you necessarily want in the business? Yeah. I mean, I try to stay really aware of people like and, you know, who I would want around me in a professional and personal capacity. Like there's just certain people with certain energy and certain work ethics that you just don't want 
around you because it's bad. It's negative. It's like this is there are people that will bring you down and there are people that will make you better and that you'll actually be able to enjoy as a human being. And I mean, Kevin Dunn just strikes me as the type of person that you want around you. Just you want to be under that learning tree as a human being and as a worker. Absolutely. I mean, and the funny thing about Kevin, when it came to me, right, because of just, you know, I'm a very, a very just creative focused person. Yeah. Um, he, he always knew how to kind of just poke and prod me to get the best out of me. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes just throwing like a jab of a line at me because he knew it was only going to make me work 20 times harder to show him like, you know, yeah, I got you, dude. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So it was, uh, it was very much uh, an old lion, young lion relationship, but like even, you know, outside of work, I had a great relationship with him. Um, you know, I couldn't find any more positive things to say about him. Very, very fortunate to have had the opportunity to, to, to really learn and expand upon what he built just on the TV side of things. So you, as a WWE kid, now find yourself as a grown-ass man doing a wrestling podcast where you have a level of expertise that most don't with the enemy, with the commentator from the other side of the Monday Night War, with Mark Madden, who the internet, uh, I would say, let's be nice, polarizing figure, Mark, Mark Madden, right? Uh, which isn't oh, a yeah. bad thing in the world of podcasting and broadcasting. Being polarizing, trust me, is not is not is never a bad thing. Um, how did uh, how did this come about? Not just doing the podcast with Pat, because obviously that's a little bit more organic. But Mark Madden uh, being the guy that uh, is going to be your your co-host. So we never, you know, initially when we talked about relaunching wrestling with sports entertainment we almost just thought about adding me to the original mix of you and pat mm -hmm. and then by the time you know once you know, pat and i had talked about it told me it wasn't comfortable just yet let's let's wait down the line we were in the mix of football season football season is just massive time for pat because that's the meat and potatoes of the product right is the football season and you know pat and the boys and their take on the game so occasionally madden would call into the show and with most of the guys in in our office being from pittsburgh uh, and one of them even having like a relationship, uh, you know, some sort of relationship with Mark. I think Mark was like a, a hockey coach of his when, when he was younger. Um, you know, Mark would appear more and more and the guys at the office just loved him. And I always found him to be entertaining. I wasn't really too familiar with his WCW work outside of working with me and Gene Oakland, my main man. Um, I wasn't too familiar with his work there, but I got to be familiar with Mark from his work on our show. And you could just tell, you know, you use polarizing, right? I think that's the best word to describe him because he's just, he's so unbelievably brilliant and has a way with words. It's just the stuff that he says is usually the stuff that most people don't want to hear and more often than not, it tends to be right. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it was, it always entertained me. And as we were kind of going along and headed towards the off season, we're like, well, shit, what sort of new content can we sort of uh, dive into that might fill the time until football gets roaring again for us. And we were like, let's get into wrestling. It's, it's natural. I mean, Pat being such a big wrestling fan himself brings wrestling to the forefront in his and, show whenever he can. And, you know, being the wrestling observers, rookie of the year. Hey, hey. rookie of the year in two matches. <laughs> yeah. Two matches. Yeah. Yeah. In a, in a very lopsided observer awards, Pat brought one home for the NXT team, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know what? If someone had to carry the black and gold banner, it was cool, it <laughs> Uh, the, the stuff that he did, I mean, it, 
it's hard not to be impressed by the guy. You when, know what I mean? Because he really just, it's almost like there's what, like we, we ask him and joke about it with, you know, at the office sometimes, is there anything you can't do? Right. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, I remember the kickoff show when they were like, we want you to just, uh, just run out into the crowd and just hype things up for a minute at the end of the show. And Pat was like, yeah. And they were like, yep, just go run into the crowd in the middle of the audience and be Pat McAfee for a while. And he was like, all right. <laughs> Boom. Yeah, the mic cut a promo. And it was yeah, great. He, and, and it was great. And just like what happened to you, he couldn't hear me. It was just all instincts. And we managed to get off the air while he was in the middle of leading the crowd in an NXT chant. So, when you, so uh, when you see Pat, right, and he's on NXT TV, and now you're on the other side, you're actually in the Pat McAfee mafia instead of the NXT mafia. Do you, as you're watching those segments with your guy on there, do you find yourself like kind of in your brain going like, oh, I kind of wish I was producing this segment because now I feel close to it. And and it wasn't, I mean, you know, you're a couple of months removed from doing the job. It's not like this is five years old, right? Oh my God. So literally, you know, the, the, the my first day in Indiana, uh, Pat and I had a talk and he goes, Hey, um, so this is interesting, but just so you know, there's a realistic chance that I'm going to be doing something with WWE uh, <laughs> probably this summer. And it, it gave me a good kick, but you know, yeah, dude, I, anything, especially involving NXT, because I do hold NXT so close to my heart mm-hmm. uh, for being part of it, you know, pretty much from inception to the day I left NXT was the last show that I produced uh, before I left WWE. Um, I, you know, I, just sat there just salivating, wishing that I could have been, you know, on headset and calling that show and helping with the creative and laying out what we were going to do with Pat. Um, it's hard not to, you know what I mean? It, it, especially when you love the business as much as I love the business, as much as you love the business. Like mm-hmm. it's hard to, it's hard to be there and not want to be part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. I get that. Totally. Um, what do you, who do you like right now in NXT? As you watch NXT on a week to week basis, who are you like? Yeah, that's money. I mean, you may not be the most popular opinion in the office, but my God, Adam Cole uh, just delivers from every every standpoint. To me, he's probably hands down the best in the business right now. Uh, another guy who uh, I've got a close relationship with that, again, I was there with him for his entire ride from the moment he got to NXT through his main roster running going back. It's Finn Balor. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people right now are seeing the best Finn Balor that they've ever been exposed to. And I still think there's even more that they've yet to see out of Finn and I'm pumped for him to let that out, but he's just operating on an entirely different level right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of the new crop, I'm a very, I, I'm a very, very big fan of her now and her potential of uh, Raquel Gonzalez. I think there's something very, very special about Raquel Gonzalez that uh, she's on the precipice of realizing and really just kind of running forward. Um, everybody, I mean, Io Shirai, she's just absolutely phenomenal. There's, there's, there's seemingly nothing that she can't do within the confines of a wrestling ring. It's unbelievable. Um, they really do have just a group of talented men and women down there that just make you know watching the shows very, very enjoyable. Do you think we as fans almost take for granted just because they're so much wrestling on television now you think we take for granted that we're living in an era where you're literally i mean adam cole versus finn balor is maybe the best wrestling match you could possibly have and it's just on tv on a wednesday night and then we move on to the next thing like do you think at this moment we're kind of taking for granted how good we have it i think so i think 100 percent. right like look 
creatively are any of the shows in an ideal position, you know, in terms of the fans eyes, and I'm sure maybe even for the folks behind the scenes, no, probably not. You know, there's always room for improvement, but in terms of what we have right now, like look at, look at all four shows. Let's treat each show like an individual show, Raw, SmackDown, NXT, AEW. Look at the talent rosters on there, dude. And you just said it best. You got Finn Balor and Adam Cole for free on TV. You didn't have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, we are unbelievably spoiled. We want better, sure, but for what we're getting, you can't you can't beat it right now. I would argue that the depth of these rosters and you know just the talent that's available is probably the best that the business has ever seen. And there are guys even. You know, you want to talk about New Japan Pro Wrestling, you want to talk about Ring of Honor, uh, even Impact, regardless of their relationship of AEW. There are there are plenty more folks that you've yet to see on a larger scale that can still wow and deliver. Do you worry that it's only a matter of time before uh, you deliver a hot take on wrestling with sports entertainment that you get a text from somebody going, bro, I thought we were friends. Like, what, what are you doing, man? What are you, <laughs> what are you doing? No, I mean... <laughs> I think everyone understands, uh, you know, the concept, right? Like you've got to, without any sort of honesty, there's no point in doing the show. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd like to think that if folks know that I'm saying something, it's not coming from a mean place. You know what I mean? Especially those that I know that I may have some sort of critical opinion on, or, you know, maybe some sort of change in direction. It's not coming from a place of, I'm going to bash you for the sake of bashing you. It's because that I know that there's better in there and I want to see that better out there. And look, sometimes for reasons beyond that talent's control or the company's control, you know, creative is what it is. Um, but I think we're, we're, on the, we're on the cusp of seeing something great in the business, man. And I'm, I'm really excited for it. A, a man who is a mentor of mine at WWE, this man named Chris Chambers, who mm-hmm. I, I hope one day his story and all that he's contributed to the business gets out there. Uh, we had a talk not too long before I left and I think I was kind of frustrated creatively with some stuff. And he had mentioned, you know, when I was here in 1996, we had the rock, we had triple H, we had stone cold, Steve Austin, and the business was probably in the poorest shape that I'd seen it in since, you know, I'd been involved in the game. The creative was all wrong. You fast forward a year later, we had, you know, Triple H was, you know, he was Hunter Hearst Helmsley, the blue blood from Connecticut at that time. The Rock was Rocky Maivia, this baby face third generation, you know, character. And Stone Cold Steve Austin was the ringmaster. You fast forward a year later, when the, once the creative changed and that cycle kind of came, came around again, the business took off and didn't look back. And I think we're on, we're on the fact, we're on the precipice right now. I've seen that next wave. Cause like we said before, look at, look at the talent, Sam, across the business. It's unbelievable. The creative's just not right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. I, I watch, and there's a lot of times where I'm like, we are, we're a spark away. You never know when the spark's going to come. You don't know if you're five years removed from the spark or five days removed from the spark. But we're, I mean, it's got to be a bigger spark than what uh, AEW closed their last pay-per-view with. But we're one <laughs> spark. <laughs> but we're, <laughs> we're, we're one spark away, I think. From, and you see these little, I mean, you talk about AEW, like you look at that promo that, that Mox and Kingston cut, and you're like, if if this is a glimpse of what they've got, 
they could go off on a rocket at any moment. You see stuff on, I mean, the stuff that's happening on SmackDown right now with Roman and Brian and Big E, the stuff that Big E is doing on SmackDown, the stuff that Apollo, I mean, it's amazing, I think, what Apollo is doing on SmackDown right now. And I feel like that's a spot where it's like, you know, okay, it's almost like you're starting to see the flutters of the ringmaster shifting into Stone Cold Steve Austin, but we're not quite at Austin 316 yet. You know what I mean? Like, like we're, we're figuring it out, but we still have to get hit with that spark. 100%. I mean, you know, we said it on the, I said it on the podcast last week on Wrestling with Sports Entertainment, going back to AEW, the best thing to have happened to AEW in that botched explosive finish or lack thereof was that it happened to Moxley and Kingston because if there were two performers that were strong enough to dig themselves out of that hole, it was those two guys, and they did just that. They delivered a, a promo that you almost kind of forgot what happened once they kind of got rolling and going, and I think that's uh, AEW should uh, you know, throw a couple shekels in the, in the hat for those guys because they really just absolutely delivered. Yeah. Uh, in terms of SmackDown, I mean, I, I'm of the opinion that SmackDown is the better show right now uh between you know raw and smackdown you know the, the shows that the folks call the main roster right uh it's the the stories are starting to take shape you're getting these great matchups um and you have characters like apollo cruz who such a phenomenal talent in terms of what he can offer physically i don't know that he ever he ever had a grasp on the personality slash character and he's got something he can sink his teeth into. And I think he's really, really going to excel with this. Uh, you know, I tweeted it out last night during SmackDown. Big E's going to main event WrestleMania this year. There's Or next year, excuse me. Yeah. There's no way he can't. The, 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 the star power that radiates off that man is nuclear. And it's like you've got, you've got Apollo, who I feel like in anyone else's hands, his gimmick would be absurd. Like it would yeah. be like this is ridiculous, but because there's an there's an authenticity to it, there's actual familial ties that he's he's speaking with an authenticity and a realism that you're like you connect with it. And Biggie, I mean, the, what he's proven in the last few months, what, what's I think completely changed the course for him, is his ability to snap out of goofy and get into serious, maintaining the same character. Like that character, and I mean, it's like it's like the little things when he's literally sitting on a couch with his feet in a foot bath, and then he stands <laughs> up and he starts going like, "Oh, you want to do something? You want to do something?" And you realize like this guy is a is a problem. Like the guy with his feet in the foot bath. The reason he can be this goofy is because he's a problem. If you want him to be a problem, and you're like, "This is there. It is we." You, you hit it. You hit it right on the head. Yeah, I mean, I think Biggie, but at the same time, right, I think creative's been a, a, a bigger problem on Raw than a lot of the other shows uh, for a while. But Bobby Lashley wins the championship. And all of a sudden, you're looking, and you see his entrance, and you watch him win the title, and you're going like, what is this? It's one of those, like, I didn't know I was waiting for this, but this is what I was waiting for. And it's it's funny, right? Because Bobby, what a, what a prime example. You know, you you hear whispers and murmurs a lot of times coming out of WWE that well, the old man has lost it. He's lost touch. Right. He's clearly lost it. He's not in tune with anything. You mean to tell me that Vince didn't have his fingerprints on any of that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That I was, mean, just the fact the, you look at what MVP and the Hurt business have done. Like it's been. 
perfect. And Bobby Lashley going into WrestleMania in this spot, it's like there's no, you know, any, any, I wouldn't have fantasy booked it. And I consider myself a fabulous fantasy booker, but I, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't, I didn't see it. I, and I remember like literally the day of Elimination Chamber, one of the podcast listeners was like, well, they should do Bobby Lashley versus Brock. And I was like, I get that everybody's saying that. And I get that on paper, it'd be cool to see two big meaty men slapping meat. Like, you know, like it'd be a cool match. But I go, I go right now, right now, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why would Brock Lesnar come back? Bobby Lashley's awesome, but it's not like he's a top of the card person that Brock Lesnar would come back. And in 24 hours, I had to come on and be like, no, 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 no. That's that's the match I want to see. Like, they've completely... In 24 hours, told a story where you're like, oh, no, this could be a bigger match than Roman versus Edge. Well, it's funny, right? Look at look at Bobby's overall journey. You know, they talked about Bobby's 16-year journey to get to breaking into the business and becoming world champion. You know, Bobby started in WWE as a total ass kicker. ECW, ECW champion, comes over. He does the main event in the Battle of the Billionaires at WrestleMania. Um, you know, goes to TNA, has great success there, is kicking ass in the MMA world. And to me... I think his journey kind of really took off when he came back to WWE and it was almost, it was almost right. Like you hear about these talent that talk about like, you know, paying dues and stuff like that. Like Bobby got stuck with that shitty story about having the three sisters and one of them chased him with a a dirty mop and whatever the case may have been horrible, like horrible, horrible. Right. But there's a part of me as a fan that, you don't appreciate the success without knowing the shit that he went through to get to this point. You know what I mean? Right. Like he, he overcame some pretty, uh, some pretty, pretty awful obstacles to kind of get to this point. And now that we have him at this point, I feel like the audience will appreciate him more. Um, I feel like Bobby, his work is probably just going to continue to rise because I think he finally got to experience what it was like being on the bottom side of things. And it may sound like weird and like, Oh, was there some sort of manipulation involved? No, I don't think that's the case at all. I legitimately think that when the whole three sisters angle was pitched, Hey, this will get Bobby connect with the audience better. I actually think that Bobby going through all that stuff to get to this point is what has made the fans connect to him that much more because you really, you really can appreciate that struggle and that journey to seeing this physically just, I don't know. I like, I feel like this is what like toy makers envision action figures to look like when they want to, you know, when they want to get ready for the Christmas line, like Bobby is built like everyone would imagine to want to be. And his skills are unbelievable. His athleticism, unbelievable. And you, I legitimately feared for the Miz's life, the (laughs) raw where Bobby was crowned champion. Like, You know, it, it it took a little kind of long to get there in my eyes in terms of like teasing the three hour stuff, but holy shit, you are a believer of Bobby Lashley. Yeah, and thank God that it paid off. That would have been one of the worst Raws of all time had the Miz won. But when Bobby Lashley won the title, it was almost like everything's okay. Like, all right, all right, okay. Like you made us wait for it. All right, this was. But he won the title, and then I actually think it was a a decent move to then go back the next week. No stomach cramps, straight up Miz versus Bobby Lashley, no lumberjacks, no nothing, and go like, oh, no, 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 no. Bobby Lashley destroyed the Miz because that's what Bobby Lashley does. 
And it's funny, right? Because like in Bobby's build, Bobby's been built as this monster heel, right? This just absolute wrecking ball ass kicker. And the night he won the title, you thought he was the biggest baby face in the company. Yeah. And that's what's going to make WrestleMania, I think, so interesting. Because it's the first time fans are back. And let's say, I mean, we're saying, like, I want to see, I, the match I want is Bobby versus Brock. Who knows, right? We may, Who knows if Brock will be on WrestleMania. Maybe, would, maybe it will be Bobby versus Drew. Maybe it'll be some triple threat. But let's say it's Bobby versus Drew. It's going to be really interesting. And, I mean, I think Drew McIntyre has done an unbelievable job in the last year holding that title, being the top guy on Raw in a position where it's like he's never been the top guy with fans. He had to figure out how to do this with no audience. And I think that, like, I, I couldn't sing Drew McIntyre's praises enough. But just given the way the story's been told, and who knows the way it'll be told for the next four weeks, but we go into, you know, Raymond James Stadium, and if it's Bobby Lashley versus Drew McIntyre and there are live fans, not a Thunderdome pre-tape, you know, chant going, who are people cheering and who are people booing? And is it going to match the story told? Because I think, yeah, I, yeah, sorry. yeah no, I, I mean, I, I think Bobby Lashley is the one that's getting cheered. If that's the match that happens. I mean, we very well could be walking into Rock Hogan too, right? With, yeah. In terms of. The, the, just the way the crowd will be split. But, you know, to go back to Drew, you're 100% right in terms of what he's done this year. Mm -hmm. And imagine the challenge that you face when, you know, the pop that Drew got when he eliminated Brock from the Royal Rumble was unbelievable. Yeah. Absurd. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're building towards this WrestleMania moment that is now going to happen without fans. You know, I imagine from a performer standpoint, you want to get that feeling back. You know what I mean? And here's your opportunity to get it back. So I think, I think, you know, as much as they could be split, I think overall both guys are going to blow the roof off the roofless stadium. The pirate <laughs> ships are going to sink yep. everything else in between. I think you can very well see Bobby Lashley and Drew McIntyre steal WrestleMania. I think it's a good call. And those are the type of hot takes that you're going to get on wrestling with sports entertainment. Uh, every, is it every week, right? Every every week. Right now, we're looking at a every Tuesday card subject to change is always in the business. Sure. But yeah, every Tuesday, uh, I think around like eight p.m., new well, episodes drop. Best thing you can and, do uh, is well, get on the intranet and uh, subscribe. Just look up wrestling. And by the way, it's spelled W R A S S L I N. Controversial, but still acceptable. Wrestling with sports entertainment. Uh, just look it up wherever you get podcasts. Hit the subscribe button, which I'm hoping you're doing with this podcast anyway. Hit yes. the subscribe button. That way, if the date changes, if the whatever changes, you'll be all subbed up, and it'll uh, it'll it'll get delivered to your phone every week. Absolutely, check us out on YouTube if you're into videos. Also, just search Wrestling with Sports Entertainment. Uh, it's it's a good time. You get to see Mark and I just kind of chop it up and have a good time talking about the business that we both love that you love. It's uh, it's pr it's pretty wild to be in this position, but I'm enjoying it, man. It's awesome, man. I'm glad that you are. I'm glad that you're doing this. Um, and we'll definitely have to do this again. Not only because just we could talk about the current product all day and 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 have a fine time of it, but I mean, we have literally not scratched the surface on the actual stories that we have doing kickoff shows. I mean, the literally the best ones haven't even been mentioned. <laughs> like, not even close. There's still we could do a whole. I think we could do a whole podcast. Like, I mean, a series of podcasts. 
on stories from from kickoff shows. Is this is this your pitch right now? Uh, yeah, that's it. Me? Yeah, let PMI know. Uh, I got <laughs> <laughs> pre-showing with mike and sam yeah 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 uh, you know you, you get top billing you're the you're, you're the star nah yeah but you know what technically they're your stories right the pre-show is no. yours you're the producer all right you're the you're you're the great and powerful oz behind all <laughs> no, these no, kickoff shows pay no attention to the man behind the curtain it's always it's always <laughs> the guy in front of the camera that was you man yeah um i think you know it's funny all my stuff from my old uh, wwe office is still boxed up in the new york offices mm -hmm. and I kept what a sweet little memento. I think it may have been after one after your first WWE pay-per-view kickoff show. This lovely handwritten note on not Sam stationery from just a, uh, a a grateful, polite young man who just wanted to express his gratitude for the uh, for the working relationship and the opportunity. If I could guess, I bet the letter the 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 one I sent to you, you were probably like, "Oh, that was so nice." And the one I sent to Michael Cole, he was probably like, "What a fucking mark." 100 100%, 100%. I, I actually think we had that conversation i love hey, it dude, i got a i got a great card from sam roberts yeah i did too fucking mark <laughs> michael cole by the way one of the greatest human beings you could ever possibly i love that man and it will never change phenomenal i we, we still talk you know maybe once twice a week mm -hmm. and my God, just just a, a a great great dude. But uh, yeah, like you said, we've got a lot. You and I have a lot more stories that we can divulge, and I've got a lot of stories that I'll talk about on the podcast and stuff that happened behind the scenes. You know, yeah, save, helping to save Jerry Lawler's life one one lovely evening in Montreal. That would be a good. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, now that you now you can see uh, 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 Mike Mansuri's face, I was about to call you Mark Mansuri because I. You know, Jesus. I <laughs> but <laughs> if you want to see his, now that you've seen his face, go back. That's one of my favorite things to do. Go back to like, you know, yeah, yeah. Go back to some of the, you know, 10 years ago episodes of like NXT on sci-fi and, and, and raw and stuff like that. And you'll see, you'll see babyface young wet behind the ears, Mike Mansuri at ringside for a young cherub like figure. That's right. For so many shows. Well, I appreciate it, man. We'll do it again. Thank you, dude. Hey, I can't thank you enough, Sammy. I'll talk to you soon, baby. Thanks for listening. Follow at NotSam on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Rate, review, and subscribe. This has been Not Sam Wrestling. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.